fearless. 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 Fearless presence. All right. Welcome again, Scott Roos. Well, thank you, Melanie. I wanted to talk today. One thing I've been really, uh, or one place where the dots have just been connecting for me in some very fun ways is Qigong as a nervous system regulation strategy or as a tool, you know, as a process that supports nervous system regulation. And I was thinking it would be fun to just to talk about the energy channels in Qigong. And, you know, I think most people, if you haven't practiced that kind of a martial or a non-martial art, <laughs> you know, as at least the type of Qigong that um, I've been doing is, you know, modern exercise uh, methods, modalities, don't really connect with the energy. Or the energy is just how much are you sweating and how hard are you working. And, you know, it's this very externally driven thing. And a even, focus. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah, in, in modern exercise, modern day exercise, there's not really a focus on well, let's get this energy channel in my arm functioning properly uh, because there's not an awareness of the energy channel in the arm. It, it may happen to do that because of the biomechanics of how they're moving something, but um, but you're right. There's not a focus of let's get that energy channel open uh, and keep going. I, I interrupted. Right. No, no, no. It's, it's all good. And I've really just been delighted as I've... Uh, gone deeper into Qigong and with and added another teacher, <laughs> added one of your teachers into my repertoire of, um, you know, how many pieces of it are so consistent with the uh, type of nervous system regulation that I teach. And but but I think in Western society, like we were like one, yes, we don't have that that sense of the you know, that awareness of the energy channels. And um, Malcolm, your teacher, or my new teacher and your longstanding <laughs> teacher, says that even in China, it's happening that Tai Chi and Qigong, that really there's, the, they're really just talking about the external awareness more than the internal awareness. And so that energetic piece is even getting lost in, um, you know, where it's been very traditional, though there, I understand there's also politics around, um, around that. Yes, <laughs> around practice of Tai Chi and Qigong in China, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about. There's a politics involved. Uh, but yeah, um, originally Qigong was called Neigong, which means internal art. And that was illegalized uh, in the communist revolution. It was made illegal, and anyone practicing that internal art uh, could have been arrested. And and people had to go practice in secret 
on rooftops, like in the middle of the night when there were no lights out. Like it was, wow. <laughs> it was a strange. That's, that's so amazing. I, yeah, the, I have a, um, a needlepoint that my husband's grandmother completed. Um, but the flowers in it were done in communist China and smuggled out during all of that. And I wonder, like, you know, it's so interesting to think about what other, you know, I think about, like, why was, you know, was this just a strategy to, like, to survive, to get some money? Or was it illegal to do needlepoint? You know, was it, was, you know, was it, I don't, I don't know the story around that, but I think, but I think that's really interesting when those things that, um, you know, that might be meditative or develop awareness, you know, or where art becomes a threat to the people in power. Art becomes a threat or, you know, meditation or (laughs) reflective practices become a threat to people in power, Um, which is, you know, pretty telling about the people in power, I think. Absolutely. Well, and you could make the case like Christianity did that too in the way that the Bible got re- uh, or got translated and modified and adapted over time too. So Mm. it's it's definitely not... um, uh, it's it's a signature of people seeking power <laughs> to rewrite. Right, right. They the want to control the practices. ideas. Yeah, they want to control what ideas are thought and how those ideas are thought to make sure that the ideas support the people in power. That's that's a very common thread throughout history. Yes, let's control the ideas. So I want to set up the um well in a minute i want to set up just uh, describe the the energy channels that go with qigong but first in you know cuz people exercise because they want fitness they want health they want peace they want to feel better you, you know they they want you know better health they want to be more attractive they want health wealth and love and that's mostly why we do anything <laughs> or what mode the external carrot that um, drives us to do, to do these things. But do you think that the, the, like in Western society, that the exercise modality, whether it's like you're going to spin class or you're um, weightlifting or Pilates or whatever is like a, a false idol of sorts or that, you know, or like, or that it's saw like, and even when it helps you, it solves, it's really solving a different problem than what you think it's solving. <laughs> Maybe it's a different problem. I exercise. Well, first of all, let's just say exercise is good. Um, it, there's a wonderful book about exercise of the brain called spark. And it goes through all the Western science studies on, exercise and depression, exercise and anxiety, exercise and stress, exercise and uh, human growth hormone, exercise and, 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 and. And um, so first off, I I don't want to poo-poo exercise. I love exercise. I think it's important, especially in the context of the modern world. What's this context of the modern world? 
the modern world, we are sessile. How's that for a fancy Latin word? Sessile means seated all the time. We're sitting in chairs, staring at screens. And, uh, you know, I, I'm creating this hypothetical past uh, where, it, it, but, but maybe it's true, we were much more active. You know, we would, oh, I need to get water. I'll walk down to the well <laughs> and get some water. Or, oh, I need to work on the crops. So I'll walk up and down our field. Uh, and that was going to work. And, uh, you know, or, oh, I have to walk to work because, you know, it's a mile away. Um, and so we, we look historically throughout history and, and, and there was a lot more moving around for most people than I think most people today in the modern, I mean, there are still people who move around with work. When I was a high school teacher, I would log like 15,000 steps a day, or, you know, maybe car mechanics are moving around. So there are plenty of people who do move, but there are also plenty of people who don't. And so where exercise becomes really important is for those people who are not moving, because I don't know that the human body is designed for not moving. I think when we not, when we don't move and we don't move properly, the human body rewrites its uh, habit pattern movement uh, for movement. And, and then we get into really bad patterns of holding our body, really bad patterns of alignment and, and bad things start to happen when we don't exercise. So um, that being said, I think exercise is great. I mean, go for a walk. Go, if you can run and your body's aligned properly, go for a run. Um, the idolized it now that's different <laughs> and, and i think it has become idolized for several reasons one all of a sudden we have a coach right and it's this coach modality and it brings us back to high school when we had a coach and you have this person telling you what to do which is it's wonderful it's someone encouraging us it's someone leading us in the exercise ritual um, and, and we tend to idolize this person. And I always find it funny is, um, I went to this cycling class in San Francisco, uh, because my buddy wanted to go and I'm like, really people pay $30 to cycle for an hour. Uh, I didn't understand that. Um, <laughs> just the economics of that. How does that work? Uh, how, how do people have so much money just to go, why don't you just go to the gym and cycle for an hour? But and, you know, they had the disco ball and the fun music and, and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is kind of a fun spin class, but $30 really, I'm not sure. But then what surprised me most of all is after that, everyone was, you know, was, uh, some 20 year old uh, teacher and everyone in the class was just idolizing this 20 year old uh, who was leading class and I was just mesmerized by it because I didn't understand why is this 20 year old who whose only skill is kind of dancing on the bicycle uh, to the music uh, and, and yell and kind of encouraging and coaching people is suddenly the most popular person in the room and everyone wanted to get selfies with this person and post on the media and and I was like what is this phenomenon and, and that phenomenon was about idolizing this person and so there was kind of, uh, and maybe it speaks to the lack of connectivity we have in our world that people's only connection with someone who encourages them and helps them out is, is a 20 year old on a bicycle. 
um, coaching them along. And, and so that becomes their only connection to groups uh, of other people because that's the only time they're ever in a group that's, that's collectively in a purpose. And, and so it becomes this great ritual um, because that's their only access to other people. And once upon a time, maybe religion had that function where you'd go to church and you'd feel like part of, of a group. Or, um, and then if we go further back in time to native cultures or, or even contemporary native cultures, there are more groups of circles of people who hang out and do things in groups for common purpose, whether it's meditation groups or, or dancing groups or ritual. Like there are, there, it was more common in society. And my old astrology teacher would say, this is an example of de-evolution of the world that we don't have these groups anymore. Uh, so then when they pop up, when these groups pop up, uh, you know, they, they hold a lot more sway than you think they might. And I see you wanting to say something. I'm just going blah, blah, oh, blah. No, no, so, no. It's yeah. fascinating. I think that's, a, that's just such a perfect story. And, you know, if you look at the statistics on loneliness, you know, being in an exercise class can be a, you know, they're like, it's, uh, Sue's that, you know, mm. it soothes our loneliness and it gives, you know, and having the um, the teacher probably, or my interest in loneliness is, is really in species loneliness, which is that loneliness for your place in the universe. And, mm. and that that's really, uh, you know, some experts in that area think that's what's, what's really underpinning addiction, mental health, um, you know, and just like uh, maybe more ordinary loneliness that we, you know, that we experience, that it's uh, looking for the, that bigger place, but I can, and I can totally see where having a, you know, like people tend to love a guru for sure. (laughs) And exercise is like the reason, I mean, exercise is absolutely good for you. And we did used to move much more or more regularly. And I think about this a lot with nervous system regulation because so many of the exercises uh, that I teach other coaches and healthcare professionals are things that you would get if you were walking through the forest naturally, (laughs) you know, like this is why the, you know, the research on forest bathing in, you know, in what the Japanese call forest bathing is so good. You know, it does regulate your nervous system, but you're doing gaze stabilization and, you know, visual exercises and appropriate, you're getting proprioceptive input through your feet and you're just doing all of this in, you know, as you're walking through the forest. Right. It just happens all by itself when you, when you do it. Yes. Yes. But when we work in an office and we, you know, we sit all the time and we don't exercise or we live in the urban jungle versus the actual forest, Whole jungle. <laughs> then we get, uh, we have to recreate the forest, kind of. I think you know where I live. You know, you know, like I have to. If I want to see a horizon, I have to make an effort to go see an expanse of land on the water because I'm surrounded by houses that are basically an 
arms width apart. Yes. From each other. Um, and so I get a lot of, and I think about that, like even in like, you know, as I've gotten older and my need for glasses, like would it have been different if I lived somewhere else where I was getting different visual stimulation? That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. If, if the old, old people vision, which I have as well, presbyopia, you know, is there less incidence of it for people who live in the forest? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. it. That's I don't know. I mean, certainly I know people that go and deliver glasses to people and, you know, make uh, one of my husband's classmates at the Naval Academy has an amazing um, uh, movement he's created making uh, uh, glasses for people on site in Africa and, you know, in places for populations that wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, for people that aren't seeing and don't have access to glasses, whether they can't afford it or there's nobody in their area that prescribes them, and you can make it on, make them on, you know, get the prescription right on site versus having to send wow. them out to a lab. And so right. I know that this is a problem that just exists, and it's probably existed at some level. But I but I also know like. Uh, uh, the people that I teach with train people to get their vision back. And when I do the vision exercises, I get, like, my sight gets better. I just haven't disciplined myself oh, wow. to do the vision exercises to, um, you know, and taken my glasses off. You know, my need to see what I need to see requires my glasses. You know, it's like that gap, It you know, in, I haven't struggled or <laughs> been willing to struggle enough to sort out my vision yet. But it's on my <laughs> list of things, on my list of things to do. So in nervous system regulation terms, the exercises affect, there's basically five systems uh, that get impacted by the exercises. It's visual, vestibular, which is our balance, proprioceptive, which is um, like our sense of where we are in space, somatosensory, so it's like your skin, and interoceptive, which is your uh, perception of what's hap going on inside of you. And when uh, in my Qigong class with Malcolm, we use a, a stick, and I was really struck about how, like as I'm following the stick or if I have the stick horizontally at the base of my skull and I'm turning my head and that my eyes are going to either edge or if I'm making circles with it in front of me, you know, whether that's vertical circles or, um, you know, spinning it a little bit like you might spin a baton, though it's not exactly like that, <laughs> you know, that the eye movement, you know, and following the stick is doing really some of the same, or if I choose to focus on that, I'm getting the same, you know, it's very similar to some of the exercises that um, that I that I teach in my neurosomatic program and that doing the um, you know, focusing on your the dantian and how it's spinning and playing with spinning it horizontally and vertically and obliquely and all of those different movements. It's a great interoceptive exercise. <laughs> we should tell our listeners what the Dantian is. Yes. <laughs> so the Dantian is a concept from Qigong and Tai Chi um, about, you know, where in, in 
Vedic anatomy, you might put the third or second chakras. Uh, there's a little ball in the inside of your gut, basically. And you learn to visualize and ultimately feel this little ball in the inside of your gut. And then you learn to move from the inside of this ball. And, it, and this, this ball is supposed to be a storehouse of chi. Um, and chi likes empty spaces in the body. Uh, that's why chi tends to avoid tension and knots and things of muscles. Uh, it likes these open, empty spaces to, to well in. And uh, the Dantian is the biggest, or at least can be the biggest well of chi in the body. And so one of the things Qigong and Tai Chi practitioners will seek out to do is to develop one, an awareness of the Dantian, uh, and then a facility of moving from the Dantian and ultimately building up your chi into the Dantian so that you always have, it's like a big battery. You always have your battery on full. Uh, and some of these Qigong masters will have really big batteries in the sense that their Dantians are just expansive, so expansive that you can even, someone else walking by could feel the energy coming off of someone else's Dantian. Um, so that's the Dantian and that's what, um, yeah, and is so talking in, about. in chakra terms, that's like sort of a combination of second, third chakra locations, you would say, correct? For yeah. Absolutely. So in the, the way Chi likes hollow spaces, that's really interesting to me when you say it that way, because in my visceral mobilization training, we learned that hollow organs have different mechanics than solid organs. Like your mm. intestines have different mechanics than your spleen. And so then you would, you know, and so you treat them like there are different techniques for the intestines because they are hollow. Or like in like oh, and for like bones, you know, with a medullary cavity that like your like your thigh bone, your femur, your tibia, that um, like does chi does that does that principle of chi apply to um, to long bones also? You know, to the running through the bone marrow yeah. too. Bones, uh, for sure. Where it gets stuck typically is in the joints. Um, because we, uh, the joint gets locked down from improper movement or from stress or of, of, of the muscles forming into knots or from the fascia getting tight around them or for whatever reason, it, for whatever reason, if your joint is not mobile or if it's tense, uh, then the chi will not flow through that joint. Uh, and so that's why, um, I don't know if you've done in Malcolm's class where you, you do the shoulder rolls, then you do the elbow rolls, then you do the wrists and you know, then you'll do the hips or maybe you'll do the hips before that. And then you'll do the knees and the ankles. Well, why are you doing it? All those joint mobility stuff. And from a physical level, well, it's to keep the body healthy because if your joints are all functioning, then your, your whole body functions like a big spring. And when the body functions like a big spring, everything works better. Uh, you're less likely to have any pain and you're more likely to work. Uh, your, your body's more likely to work properly. 
that's on a physical level on an energetic level it's that that's where your chi gets stuck your chi tends to get stuck in the shoulder or in the elbow or in the wrist uh or in the finger joints even uh or in the knees or in the ankles and so you want to open those up uh so that the chi flows through the body and if the chi is flowing through the body the the idea is that the body stays healthy it's when chi gets stuck in places it's not supposed to get stuck that uh, problems can occur. I so resonate with this whole philosophy because in my vagus nerve decompression system, I treat, like it, it fundamentally increases shock absorption. And I really, and, it, and it's so consistent with the Chinese concept of qi because like our modern science says that we hold stress and trauma on the horizontal, like it locks up our rotation more than it locks up most other movements, or it first locks up rotation until we compensate for it so hard you know, if we don't resolve it, and then it starts to lock up movement in other directions. And that uh, when you have good rotation, you have good shock absorption. Like they really go hand in hand. And so I love all the rotation movements that go with Tai Chi because it really, you know, quite objectively, you could say like you're really treating the way trauma is stored in the body, you know, and keeping it from getting from getting stuck in that way. Absolutely. I'm just reminded of uh, Malcolm's teacher, Master Zhang, used to, you know, when he retired from formal teaching and his students were all, what are we going to do? How, we, how are we going to ever get like you, Master Zhang? You know, we need to, we need to keep training. What should we do? And Master Zhang's response was keep doing your circles, uh, which is keep moving the body in circular directions. And, and there are three basic, you know, circular planes in, in Chinese thought. There's Li circles, which is um, up the back and down the front or up the front and down the back, moving the body and the energy in those directions. Uh, and then there's shoe circles, which is kind of moving in, in the coronal plane, I guess you'd call it, um, you know, uh, uh, up the side over the head and down the other side. And then there are ping circles, which is moving around the waist and, and, uh, you, you go circles in the, I don't know, maybe you call this the horizontal plane. plane. Yeah, a horizontal plane. Yeah. No, these are, I mean, this is, uh, you know, these are the things that you learn the first day of physical therapy school, <laughs> that, you know, like or in athletic training that like we move in three, you know, that we have three planes and we move um, usually in, so we don't usually move in isolated planes, but they make, but the combination of planes is what makes up our, our movement. And therapeutically, interventions are very many interventions are designed around isolating which plane is, is, stuck. is stuck and needs to be, right, you know, needs to be treated. And certainly when you, you know, like when I, if I was going to say in the aggregate how it how it's really visible to the collective, like when you get injured, like nobody gets stressed or traumatized or injured and w walks swinging their arms like a runway model down, you know, <laughs> like everybody locks up. And so you give up that rotation first and so, and then what you'll usually do, or like people with back pain, especially will do this a lot, where you see a lot of that coronal plane movement where like, the, and you see their pelvis moving up and down when they walk excessively. And when that breaks down, that's when you get back pain. 
mm. very often. And then, so when you lock to lock that up, then they hunch forward. And so those are your people that, you know, maybe just might, might get labeled with bad posture. They're also your old people that are bent over on a walker. You know, they've just run right. out of options for movement. My favorite thing about how the Chinese philosophy talks about these planes, though, is as the microcosmic orbit. <laughs> yeah. That, that's actually secret. We... <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> part of the secret meditative tradition, um, the microcosmic orbit. And and uh, Malcolm, my teacher and your teacher, uh, will will talk about it a lot. But it's it's part of a secret Taoist tradition of meditation, actually. Uh, and you learn to move your body in that microcosmic orbit when you're doing Lee circles, which are um, up the front or down the back, up the back, down the front. Uh, but in your meditation. There's a very old chakra meditation out of the Taoist tradition where you you move your awareness up and down the microcosmic orbit while you sit super still in meditation. Because you want that channel to be open, uh, because that channel contains two of the extraordinary energy channels. Uh, along the back, it's called the Dumai, and along the front of the body, it's called the Renmai. And you want these major energy channels to be open and functional uh, for optimal health and awareness. Well, it, it, well, it, the language of it delights me, you know, not only because <laughs> it's, it's, uh, because of the planes, but because of my understanding of how our bodies quite literally mimic the cosmos ge oh, geometrically that's... that there's, you know, that I can, you know, I, uh, have assembled what I call critical angles in the body that mimic the angles of the cosmos. And I think even in the way um, you recently taught in your uh, Vedic astrology class that the zodiac is in uh, a 16-degree band, like eight degrees above and below the equator, correct? Right. Yeah. Well, and the golden ratio is one to one point six. You know, okay. so it made me just think, you know, like that's the, you know, and that's such the geometry of how we're made, as as well. Um, you know, and I love treating, you know, the, like the vagus nerve comes out at a at a an angle consistent with the axial axial tilt of the Earth relative to the. Um, where the spinal cord comes out, and there's other. Oh, no way! Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and there's 47 <laughs> degrees. Um, so it's about axial tilt of the Earth right now is about 23 and a half degrees, but it varies from like 21.1 to 24.5 over time. But that's basically the ratio, or the angle between the center of your foramen magnum, where your spinal cord comes out, and where and your jugular foramen, where your vagus nerve exits. Amazing. And there's other 23 and 47 degree angles in the body that I could rattle off. And there's 47 degrees between the pole stars that the Earth points towards over thousands <laughs> of years, too. And so these are just repetitive geometric patterns. And so when I think about alignment, I think about, you know, now are you not just lined up within your body, but are you lined up with this bigger body of things that were 
you know, that we're living in. Like, does that as above, so below really work? Because if it's, because I think the only rule we ever follow is as above, so below. Right. I mean, what you're reminding me of Dharma, the idea of Dharma is, you know, the, the central question is, are you aligned with, you know, your family? Are you aligned with the bigger community of your city or your tribe? Are you aligned with your nation? Are you aligned with the world? Are you aligned with nature around you? Are like this alignment of being in alignment with what is bigger than you? Hmm. Oh, we could totally teach a neurology of Dharma class. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, and it's important because I think there is, you know, that misalignment with family or misalignment with community or misalignment with nation or misalignment with world or other people uh, has its neurological consequences for sure. Uh, I and we should probably sit down and design that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and it and I it like and that misalignment it makes a lot of sense to me where that misalignment would create would be an obstacle to chi flowing smoothly through your body. Absolutely, uh, and and in in another way of Vedic thinking, uh, out of Vedanta comes a panchama panchamaya kosha model of the body and then the body is like this little russian doll and the different aspects of the body all interlayer each other and there's one of the bodies called the vijnana maya kosha which uh contains how the narratives of how we relate to ourselves in the bigger picture Uh, and then ultimately there's one that's even more subtle called the ananda maya kosha which means the bliss body and how we align ourselves with spirit and this and and the world and and what's you know the universe you might say yeah yeah uh, because if ultimately we're in alignment with spirit and the world and the universe then we have ananda we have bliss well from taking the and i i love this because i think that we um like our our behaviors often, you know, like we're like we want to feel good, and yet we often behave in a way that creates a lot of self-flagellation in our lives. <laughs> that there's a lot, um, but the head of the uh, transcendental, or I did the uh, when I did the transcendental meditation training, the um, part of it was watching some uh, some videos from the head of the Transcendental Meditation International, um, Tony Nader, and he's an M- Harvard-trained MD, PhD. And what was so interesting about listening to him, he talked about how, like, so how we're wired for pleasure. He says, you know, that the Vedic philosophy is basically you're wired for pleasure because the Western philosophy is you're wired for survival and everything is survival oriented. And it would like, I'd love to hear your comments on that because I think that's, I could make the case um, for both, but I, I would love to hear what, you know, from your training, how that was conveyed. Uh, I not in that way. So let me think for a second. Uh, are we wired for for pleasure? Are we wired for survival? And is there a difference? Um, 
because there there might not be a difference between those two things because you know we, we what we're attracted to um it, it is ultimately what helps us keep alive um but i think it's you know in the vedic philosophy it's the tamas of ignorance about what is pleasurable and and our knowledge of what is pleasurable i'm uh and maybe i'll just talk a story and see what comes out of this story but there was a story about this guru and and the guru his country was being invaded and and he stood up uh for for the people's rights and ultimately he was he was killed by being boiled alive and uh, i think this was an actual story or historical story from india when it was being invaded at one point and um uh someone asked him oh you know don't you wish you hadn't done this and he's like no the will of god is the sweetest thing uh and so if you can align yourself with spirit um and being that you know you you clean out your mind and you clean out your body such that you're reflecting pure spirit out of you um and that's the state the enlightened state then um you only desire more spirit because it's such um it's your pure essence of who you are and that's all you need um and everything else you lose desire for those things you have what's called vairagya which is you just don't desire it anymore um and that's why these saints they they forget to eat um <laughs> because you know, they, 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 the, the desire and experience of being in that spirit state is so intoxicating, but not really intoxicating in a bad way, but just it's such an ananda, it's a bliss, it's a pleasure that um, you don't need anything else. Um, and, and that becomes, you know, and that's kind of the, the struggle in enlightenment. In fact, it's Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras says, hey, this is what you need. You need two things if you want to get that, if you want to get your mind right. Uh, you need to practice and you need to stop desiring for external things. And, and the question is, well, does that come out of practice or is that its own practice? Or does that just start to happen as we mature as spiritual beings? Um, but it does, it, the Yoga Sutras does say, hey, once you get a taste of that spirit, you start to desire that more. That becomes your your big want. Um, you want to know yourself. And maybe I'm getting distracted and sidestepping the question like no, a no, good no, politician. No, no, no. I think it's all very consistent with, you know, so maybe the Western equivalent of that at some level, like if you're going to like if you're going to talk in terms of trauma or you know or going from negative to positive that when people can put meaning to their trauma then that allows them to move forward and live a much happier life mm. you know and that meaning can be like often has a really spiritual structure to it you know or you like you're putting some you know that it it you know that this terrible thing created something new and this was uh really brought into the collective 
or Western awareness, I'll say, uh, through Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist and was also in concentration camps and counseled people there. Oh, wow. And, you know, that when you can put meaning to your trauma, then, you know, that allows you to to live more a bit blissfully. And certainly you could make the case that survival and pleasure, that survival is pleasurable. <laughs> but I think the, the Western narrative, I think really misses that. Like they say like survival is um, desperate or survival is, you know, it'll, it'll, you know, like the saber-toothed tiger, you know, running away from this, you know, getting away, successfully getting away from the saber-toothed tiger, that it's this, there's a lot of drama in survival. And, but you're, you know, and sometimes seeking pleasure is not always, uh, because pain and pleasure are processed in the brain very similarly. Similarly, sometimes we, in seeking pleasure, we pick the more painful thing, or we might choose to go back to our abusive partner right because because it gives us yeah because it's familiar an experience mm -hmm. it makes us i'm thinking of the gambler right it, it, that the gambler goes back to the craps table and loses again uh because of you know the the rush of losing is actually more intense than the rush of winning right right yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is you know and at the end of the day you know i will uh you know I think the easiest way to understand it is that your nervous system is always seeking contrast. Right. It, it, it yeah, you, you want different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and, and you're, and it will not let you live a dull story, but I think we can get contrast in different ways and even, you know, just bringing it all full circle, Qigong gives you, the experience of some contrast, like what is it like to move in this plane versus this plane and, you know, move your energy yeah. this way versus that way, you know, and like the contrast that we create, I don't think always has to be all of this trauma and drama that if we can get healthy, contrast, if we can enjoy we contrast in other ways, maybe we don't have to have as much as that of that other <laughs> of the trauma and drama to get us to pay attention to the contrast within Mm, no, that's very wise that, you know, giving our, our nervous system and our mind an experience of contrast in movement and in breathing uh, and in energy awareness and in energy awareness in different parts of the body uh, might fulfill a certain need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then I think you just don't create, or that's, I don't know, that's, I don't have the research to support that yet, but that's my theory on how that works. People who, who walk, who really walk the spiritual path, you know, there's a lot less drama in their lives. Yes. And I don't know if it's just because of the vairagya that they've, they're stopped thirsting for material things. And so they have fewer material things, you know, or they're practicing, there's a practice in yoga philosophy called the parigraha, which means you're not grasping for things, but also you're not holding on to things you don't need. Uh, because there's an awareness that the more physical things you have, the more complicated your life becomes. Um, so it, it, spiritual people often reduce the amount of things that they have and have to take care of just because it makes life simpler uh, and having less drama. 
Sure. And just observing that contrast and the contrast of like the collective Mm. can be, you know, that like if you're, you know, whether you're being the contrast or observing it, that I think that that gives some satisfaction to your nervous system in terms of not creating lots of other contrast and other places and you know and I don't like we'll save it for another time because I'm sure that karma and dharma and all <laughs> of that play into it at some level too I think our our soul level logic is not our human logic mm. in some cases but I don't know like sometimes I think if you you know like as you're soothing your own nervous system that maybe you're also soothing your own karma and giving it a chance to move more smoothly. Th- well, I mean, yeah, karma is manifest in the body as well. And mm-hmm. so on some soothing nervous system, you're soothing the karmas you've done in the body. Um, because karma is just cause and effect. It's just action and consequence. And your action might be, you know, going to work and being stressed out by a boss. Right. And, and so that has a consequence that's felt in the body. And so, yes, when you do Qigong, you're soothing the body, which is soothing those karmas that happen from getting stress and teaching the body new ways of acting and responding so that maybe when the boss yells at you next time, you're not as stressed. And you can see that, oh, he's yelling because he's suffering, not because you've done anything wrong uh, and he's not dealing well. And and it, it brings that awareness is in into you that... Um, allows you not to take things personally. Uh, and so that your physiology can function well, even in a somewhat stressful environment. Yes. Well, maybe next time we'll, uh, we'll kind of continue. That was an hour already. I know, we're close. <laughs> oh. We'll uh, continue along these lines because I think that, like, this is a good segue into, so there's research that shows that when Solar and space weather disrupt the electromagnetic field of the Earth. It's measurable in our vagus nerves. And the extent to which it's measurable depends on the strength of our interpersonal connections. So to me, that lays some foundation for medical astrology and how, you know, the aspects of the planets can... um, you know, perhaps affect our nervous systems in the way that create health or disease or that, you know, depending on whatever core state of nervous system regulation you're in, perhaps. Amazing. And so, (laughs) but I think that would be, um, we'll, we'll do that next time. I think it would be fun to, uh, to do a little, uh, Western and Geotisha, uh, medical astrology. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Scott. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence podcast. Text FEARLESS to 411321 to take your first step into Fearless Presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.